as you can, either through a Bible app or a physical Bible, to turn in your Bibles and follow along as we work through this passage together. Now, usually, when we come to God's Word, we take a few moments in these opening remarks to kind of explore the passage's larger context and hopefully bring some clarity to what we're about to study. And the reality is, is that when we look at Psalm 19, we're not afforded so much by way of context. Instead, if you just look in the actual Word of God, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's all the context that we get. And so from that, we can maybe deduce a couple of things that might help us. Uh, So let's look at those really quickly. First, we know that this is a psalm that is written by David, a man appointed by God to be the king of Israel, who is famous not only for his kingship, but also for his musical ability and his poems. You can read about his life in 1 and 2 Samuel to kind of get an idea as to what that was like. C.S. Lewis, who was a, a notable professor of literature in his own right, said that this particular psalm, Psalm 19, he considered to be the greatest poem ever written. So David is clearly a man of great talent and clearly a man of great ability. But why did David write this psalm? I think there are two clues that we can look at here. The first is, when we look at the kind of script at the top, it says, to the choir master. We can understand that David wrote this psalm not just as poetry for himself, but as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, he intended this to be used in public worship so that God's people would be blessed and led to their God. And you'll see in verse 14, at the conclusion of the psalm, David says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that word acceptable is a Hebrew word that is deeply associated with the worship of God through temple sacrifice. In Leviticus, it talks about sacrifices being considered pure in the eyes of the Lord so that those who were offering the sacrifice would be deemed acceptable in the sight of God. And so what David, I believe, is doing here is drawing attention to something really important. That the worship of God and the fellowship with God are part and parcel. They are meant to come together. It's as if David is reminding God's people through this psalm of God's wonderful promise. He will be your God and you will be his people. And we too this morning are being led into worship. Our entire liturgy, the music, the profession of faith, the sacrament, this word, all of it is trying to draw attention to the fact that you were created to know God and to be known by God. And as we look at Psalm 19, we are going to see that if you, if we desire a relationship with God, then we must respond to how he has revealed himself to us. And the psalmist, David, is going to show us that we do this by turning our ears to the sky, turning our eyes to the scriptures, and turning our hearts to the Savior. So that is where we're headed this morning, to look at how do we respond to how God has revealed himself to us. But before we dive in, let's take a moment and pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your love and your grace toward us in Christ. We thank you that you have gathered us together as your people this morning to worship you and to be with one another. 
We ask, Lord, that you would use your word now by your spirit to turn our hearts to you in worship. That you would show us your glory in creation, your grace through your word, and the beautiful reconciliation that we have and find in our Savior. Show us Christ this morning in a powerful way, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So David says if we want to have a relationship with God, then we must turn our ears to the sky. I want you to look really quickly to verses 1 through 4. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In verses 1 through 4 we read that the earth is filled with a message, and that this message is coming from the heavens or from the skies above. No doubt in David's mind here, He's thinking of the sun, the moon, and the stars. You will remember in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, he said that he put them in the sky to separate day from night and to be for signs, to communicate. Woven into the very fabric of our cosmos is a communication strategy. And this communication strategy is not small in its context or short in its its reach. If you look at verses 2, 3, and 4, it says, day to day, this message is poured out in speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. I love that word, pours out. It means like it's gushing forth like a waterfall. And in verse 4, it says, their voice or their line of communication goes out throughout all the earth. There's no words that we hear. And yet, David says their message is very, very obvious. The skies declare that God is an artist that is worthy of our praise and a king that is worthy of our honor. Let me show you what I mean. If you look back at verse 1, where David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That word, handiwork, is probably better translated craftsmanship, right? That David, in thinking about the rotation of the stars, about the cadence of the moon's phases, or of the splendor of the sun's rising and setting, always in perfect timing and in perfect rhythm, he's drawing attention to the fact that the sun, the moon, and the stars draw attention to God's brilliance and to his beauty and artistic ability. It doesn't take a a whole lot of argument, I think, to point to God's glory in creation and show that he is an artist that is truly worthy of our praise. But if we keep looking at verse 1, we see even more. This says, The heavens declare the glory of God in the beginning of verse 1. And this word, or I should say this phrase, declare the glory of God, could also be translated, recount the wealth or the honor of God. And while the meaning for us is probably very common, in the sense that we kind of understand that the glory of God is being revealed to us, what David is doing in this verse is unbelievably poetic. Because what David is doing here is he is turning his eyes back to the stars and to the moon and to the sun, and he's describing them like jewels in the crown of a king. 
And we know this because in verse 4, he says that in them he has sent a tent for the Son, who comes out, and look at the bottom of verse 4 there, like a strong man. And that phrase, like a strong man, could also be translated like a mighty king. David is saying, the Son is pointing to a mighty king, and the stars above are his crown jewels. So we see very, very clearly that all of creation, the skies above, are proclaiming and declaring that God is an artist that is worthy of your praise and that God is a king who is worthy of your honor. We sing a song often that goes something like this. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. But if we're honest, it's actually all of creation across the globe and at every moment that is actually calling us to worship. Think about it like this. Imagine that you are going to your favorite art gallery or that you've had an opportunity to go to the movies and watch an excellent film or to hear an incredible piece of music. These things, naturally they seem to draw out the praise of those who are witnessing them. If you go to a performance, at the end of a performance, there is often a standing ovation. And I don't know about you, whether or not the performance seems to you know, muster that standing ovation, there's kind of like this unbelievable compulsion to stand and to applaud and to bring honor and to bring glory and praise to the artist who has accomplished the task in front of us. God's world is no different. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, who's a really, really great poet, said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. I would recommend his poetry to you. It is very much in line with what we see in Psalm 19, always drawing attention to how God's world is gushing forth with testimony of God's honor and praise. So what does this mean for us? It means that if we desire to have a relationship with God, then we need to turn our ears to the sky and we need to respond to their call us to, as they call us to worship. Each and every moment, we have an opportunity to celebrate God's glory. Right? You could drive down to Naples like my family and I did this weekend and just be in complete awe of the sights and the sounds and the textures that you will see when walking through Grimes Glen. Or you could go camping in the Adirondacks and enjoy the meteor shower that's afforded you because of the lack of light pollution. You could simply kayak Irondequoit Bay and look at all of the birds on the side of the, of the, of the mountain or the, the side there and enjoy walking watching God's glory being displayed. But it's not just on the weekends. You have an opportunity to glorify God in the work that you do. Those of you in the medical field, how often do you stop and think anatomy and physiology? What glorious artistry, what glorious honor belongs to our God. Or for those of you who are in engineering or in music, when you stop to consider all of the beauty and all of the glory that God has filled our lives with, there is always an opportunity to glorify God and to celebrate that in our lives. In other words, here's what Psalm 19 is saying. Let your wonder of creation lead you to the worship of the Creator. Now here's the problem. 
It's at this very point that we often fall short. While the skies are calling us to worship, Romans 1 tells us that the world has stopped up its ears to this message. And instead of worshiping and glorifying, right, praising and honoring the king and the artist, we have stopped up our ears and decide to worship ourselves instead. But Psalm 19 demonstrates that there is no excuse for not worshiping the king of creation. We can't hide from the truth and we can't stop up the creator's message. And the beautiful thing is that in the face of this rebellion and in the face of this ingratitude, God in the gospel reaches out in his kindness and approaches us in grace. So not only have we gone to the gallery and began to behold all of the glory of this artist and this king, but imagine for a second that you've come to the end of that film or you've spent some time standing in front of a beautiful piece of artwork and then all of a sudden you have someone tap you on the shoulder and you look back and someone says to you, would you like to meet that person? Would you like to have a meeting with the filmmaker, with the artist, with the composer? Because he is inviting you to come and to meet with him. And the invitation, guys, is right here. It is in God's word. And so if we desire to have a relationship with God, we not only need to turn our ears to the sky, we need to turn our eyes constantly to the scriptures. In verse 7 through 9, David shifts his perspective from the sky to the scriptures. Look in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It is here that God has revealed himself in ways that are actually inaccessible in the world. And so, if we want to know God more, we need to recognize that God has revealed himself in special ways through the scriptures. And when we look at the scriptures, we will see that God reveals himself not just as glorious as we see in creation, but in the scriptures as good and gracious. I want you to look really quickly back at verses 7 through 9. David uses six words here to describe the law of God. And what he is trying to do here is not so much draw attention to the law itself, but rather as the law and God's word reflects God's character. God's goodness, if you take these words together, are unbelievably beautiful. They are perfect. God is perfect. He is sure. He is right. He is pure. And he is righteous. David is holding up the character of God before our eyes so that we would understand that it is both absolutely wonderful to behold God's goodness, but also absolutely terrifying. We often speak of goodness and of justice in our day, but rarely do I think we consider, as individuals or as a society, how wonderful and yet terrifying it would be to actually behold a perfect and faithful and righteous expression of justice and of truth. 
This is what the Bible refers to as God's holiness. That God is unlike us. He is not corrupt in His nature. And so all of His characteristics are pure. We often approach God's goodness, I think, the way that Lucy approached Aslan in the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia. She asks, is Aslan safe? We say, is God safe? What's the answer? No, of course not. But he is good. And he is gracious. Look at the second half of verses 7 through 9. Notice that David now draws attention to the transformation of those who have turned their eyes to behold this beauty and this goodness of God. God's word, God's character revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart and it enlightens the eyes. And each of these phrases are meant to, in a different way, speak of God's grace. Because when you take their opposites, what we see here is that God's grace is being extended toward those who are turned away. That phrase, reviving the soul, might better be translated, come back to or to restore. And God's grace is being extended to those who are turned away, to those who are ignorant, to those who are oppressed, to those who are foolish. And instead of casting those people aside, Psalm 19 shows us that God moves toward those people through his word. And he brings them life and wisdom and righteousness and joy. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means as we've turned our ears to taking opportunities to give glory to God through his creation, we should also be consistently coming to God's word, to scripture, expectantly. Because if we desire to have a relationship with God, we need to respond to the goodness and the grace that we see in his word. So read God's word regularly. Study it consistently to determine what it actually means. Meditate on it daily and nightly. Pray it, sing it, memorize it. Do whatever it takes to saturate your life with God's Word. We do that on Sunday morning. We pray that you're doing that with your families through family worship. We pray that you're doing doing that as individuals through daily worship. Take advantage of the vast amount of resources that are afforded us, especially in America, to look consistently and expectantly to God's Word. But why should we expect change when we go to God's Word? I can understand, right, as a good Christian, we should read our Bibles, right? We should always be going to the Word. But why should we expect change? And I believe that it's because when we turn our eyes to the scriptures consistently and expectantly of meeting God, that we will actually see the Redeemer that God has promised us. Look in verses 12 through 14. David, after considering God's glory in creation and his goodness and his grace in his word, 
David looks at himself and he sees how far he has fallen short of that goodness and how much he is in need of God's grace and salvation. And so you'll see in verses 12 through 14, David longs to be reconciled to God, to be brought back to him. But the thing that needs to happen first, before that can happen, is that he needs to be rescued from his sin. And so David clings to God's promise that he will be David's rock and he will be David's redeemer. And as we look at what David does here at the end of this prayer, he will show us that when we turn our hearts to the Savior, we are truly rescued from sin's penalty in our lives and sin's power in our lives. Look at verse 12. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I love that David uses that phrase, hidden faults, because it demonstrates that David is not making excuses for his sin, nor is he trying to pretend that he is a good person. He recognizes in light of God's goodness that there is no way that he could possibly be good even if he took the time to consider himself good in his own eyes. He says, declare me innocent. David is not making excuses. He is rather looking toward atonement. This sacrificial system, right, where one pure sacrifice would take the place of another person, that lambs and goats and bulls needed to be pure so that when they were sacrificed, the purity of the sacrifice would be imputed to the person offering that sacrifice. And David is saying, I need to look to a better sacrifice to the purest sacrifice that you can give me, Lord, so that you can declare me innocent at the deepest and the most profound level, even at the level that is hidden from my own eyes. And that is the promise, that we will be rescued from sin's penalty when we turn our eyes to the Savior. But second, notice that David says, Also, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Though David knows that he is forgiven through the sacrifice, David also recognizes that he is not a good person. He knows that he is still a sinner by nature. And so instead of trusting in his own strength to do the right thing, he recognizes that he needs to look to the Lord to deliver him from sin's power and to grant him sustaining grace. We are exactly like David. We too need to turn our hearts to the Savior. We need God to provide a pure sacrifice for our sin if we are going to have a relationship with him. And we need God's sustaining grace in our lives, even for those of us that are forgiven, because we are sinners by nature. But the beautiful thing about God's word and about the gospel is that while David put his hope and his trust in a promised redeemer, one who had yet to come, 
We worship and serve and behold a revealed Redeemer. In Luke 24, Jesus taught his disciples after the resurrection that everything in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of these things were pointing to him. That he is the fulfillment of David's longing. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says this, All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And that is why through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. What does this mean for us? It means that if you have not placed your hope and your trust in the revealed Redeemer, that you do not have a peaceful and a reconciled relationship with God. And I plead with you that you would look to the skies and recognize that you are being called to worship. And that you would look into the scriptures to see the clarity and the purity of God's goodness. And that you would also see his grace so that you would turn to him and turn your heart to the Savior for salvation. That by putting your hope and your trust in Christ, you will be welcomed back and sustained and acceptable in God's heart. But for those of us who are Christians, we too need to be constantly turning our hearts to the Savior. Because sin clings so closely. And you too and myself may have many hidden sins that we are completely blind to. And we are not exempt from possibly committing presumptuous and arrogant sins. We need God's sustaining grace on a daily basis. Turn your heart to the Savior to receive it. Perhaps John Calvin said it best. In his commentary on the gospel according to John, this is what John Calvin wrote. It is in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed both high and low, the glory of God does shine, but nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifest. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. And in short, the whole world is being renewed. And so, Grace Church, let us live in the light of God's glory and his grace. You were made to be known by God and to know God. That is the purpose for your existence. And if we want, if we desire a peaceful and a reconciled relationship with God, then we must constantly and consistently turn our eyes to the sky and heed its call to worship. And turn our eyes to the scriptures and behold our good and gracious God. And turn our hearts to the Savior to be rescued from our sin. So that our lives, like all of creation, might glorify God in the worship that we give him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. 
beyond our imagination and our comprehension. We are in awe and in terror of your goodness. We thank you that you have shown us great mercy and compassion through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have given us a consistent testimony to your glory in creation. Move our hearts to heed its call. And we thank you that in your word you have revealed to us the Redeemer. Turn our hearts constantly to you for salvation that you are offering freely. You are so good, Heavenly Father. And for that we give you honor and praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.